Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? I, j- I just have one word, and I'm not even sure it's really a word, but it's burr. I mean, like, like burr. It is darn cold. And uh, how many of you have little kids at your house? Parents of little kids. Yeah, quite a few of you out there. Uh, I don't know if I'm the only one where this happens, but all this week, you know, I mean, it's like 13 below, 14 below, 16 below in, in the mornings, and I got little kids going to school in hoodies and basketball shorts. Does that happen to any, any of you? And I'm going like, good heavens, when I was nine, was I that dumb? Like, really, was I, was I that dumb? Wow. A little more than two weeks to go until Christmas. I like, let that sink in. A little more than two weeks to go until Christmas. And in these weeks, we're preparing the way to our hearts for Jesus' arrival. We're preparing our hearts for the birth of Jesus Christ, who isn't just a little baby, right? He is, but he's also the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who came to model life his way, as well as sacrifice his life for us on the cross so that we can know God and live with him forever, starting right now. I just realized that the cross is now over there. I'm used to pointing over here, but it's now over there. You should help me say, it's over there, Brian. Like for weeks, I've been pointing over here. Now, it's over there. Throw something at me if I get it wrong again, would you? Last weekend, if you were around, we looked really, really hard at the soil of our hearts through the lens of the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. Remember that? We talked about those incompatible wishes that so many of us hold in heads and hearts that crowd Jesus out, keep him from laying hold of our whole hearts. And I hope and pray that you gave some attention to what the Lord is saying to you about the soil of your heart this week. I did. I prayed for all of you that you would. And I really prayed that you would take time and make space to press in with the Lord. Give God time and space to work on the soil of your heart so that it might be like the fertile soil in Matthew 13, ready, prepared for Jesus' arrival. And out of that, we're going to then this week go to the next place. The natural place you'd go after you examined the soil of the heart, soil of your heart with the Lord, looked around for any incompatible wishes. And that next natural place is to ask this question, what has to go? What has to go from your heart and your life so that Jesus can lay hold of all of you so that he can have your entire being? What has to go? What do you have to put down? To get you thinking along those lines, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever had a friend or have you ever known anybody who is a hoarder? Hey, anybody? You know some? Yeah. Are there any hoarders in the room? No, don't raise your hand. Put your hands down. You know, a hoarder is a person who excessively collects stuff. And the spiritual gift, I'll call it, of hoarding is usually accompanied by the inability to throw anything away. They often create such cramped living conditions that their homes, hoarding is not really a spiritual gift. That was kind of a a, a minor funny, okay? Just so you know, their homes are filled to capacity with only narrow pathways winding through like floor to ceiling stacks of clutter. Some years ago, I knew a lady who was living just like that. She had a good sized house and it was literally filled floor to ceiling with boxes and boxes and boxes And she didn't know what to do one day because she could not, she literally could not fit anything else into her home without interfering with these very, very narrow paths through all of the stuff. And she didn't have any idea what she should do about that. So 
she called me and asked if I'd help her. Now, now I didn't realize when she first called that she was really just asking me to help her move some of her boxes from her overflowing house to one of her five overflowing storage units so that she could keep on accumulating more and more stuff, more and more boxes in her house. I actually thought she wanted to change. I thought she wanted to like get rid of stuff and I thought she needed my help with that. Before I took her call, before I then made a follow-up trip to her house to kind of see, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like this, I didn't know that people actually lived like that. I had no idea. And I especially didn't know what a huge deal it was when I surveyed the situation. I called the dumpster company, and I had the world's largest dumpster, the biggest dumpster I could get delivered right in front of her house. I recruited a little team and showed up, and we just started throwing these boxes away into the dumpster. I was like, well, we just got to get, ma'am, you can't even get to your bathroom right now. We just got to start throwing this stuff away. And we were throwing stuff away and throwing stuff away. These boxes were really, they were smaller size boxes, thousands of them. And they were pretty densely, like they were dense and heavy. And we had no idea what was even in them. We were just throwing and throwing and throwing. We were not at all sensitive. We didn't ask her permission. This lady was telling me she had a problem. And so I was trying to help in all my helpfulness. And so one guy on our team said, what are in these boxes? I was like, well, I have no idea. All right, let's open it up. So he opens it up, and do you know what was in those boxes? Newspapers, magazines, periodicals, journals of every type you can imagine. Newspapers, magazines, periodicals, journals dating like, like to the time of Christ. Boxes of them, boxes of thousands of boxes and we filled the world's largest dumpster we filled it to overflowing we called the people they hauled it away and emptied it and they brought it back because there was more and we just kept going and going and going we had that same dumpster emptied again and then we had it delivered to the five storage units and we started throwing stuff away there too because really this woman could not afford to pay for those storage units anymore she was out of money she couldn't afford it i'd never seen anything like it newspapers magazines periodicals journals, an entire house, like good-sized house filled floor to ceiling with all of this stuff, five storage units filled to overflowing. There wasn't any more room. We just start throwing it away and throwing it away. Now, this lady, it turns out she called me because she was really hopeful that I would rent her another storage unit, that I would pay for it, that I'd pay for the five that she already had because she just needed to keep accumulating I was like, the Library of Congress, I think they keep track of all this stuff, ma'am. Like, you're off the hook. You don't have to do this. It, it was like a crisis moment. Well, some years after my encounter with the first hoarder I had ever met, now there's a TV show, right, by that same name, Hoarders. The show chronicles the trials of people trying to convince other people to let go of some of their stuff, and it often plays out like this. All right, so Nancy, on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being she's doing a great job, zero. Whoa, she needs some help, where'd she? She's a two. <laughs> she's a two, okay. She was a one just a little bit ago. Because I said keep to everything she asked. Okay. She's not being kind to herself. All right, so I'm stepping in for a couple of minutes yes. here. I want to raise it to a five or a seven. I, you, I don't even need anyone to step in. I'm raising it to a five. Just let me move this Come really here. quick. Come here. I, I got want a you bunch of stuff. BG, I want you out of there and over here with me. Give me something. Give 
Come on, you can do this. You Look at this. We haven't even gotten into your living room, and I want you to have a living room. Do something here. Jeez. Well, somebody semi-wrecked it. That's a stroller. Fine, it's semi-wrecked. Can you get rid of it? No, I can't, because just because somebody pulled that off there doesn't, doesn't mean that it's not good. It's been good. It's this stuff or your living room. What do you want to do? Do you want a living room, or do you want to really play with the plastic stuff? Give me a break. Don't you want those kids in your living room in your house? Mm -hmm. I'm picking on you. Do you get that? <laughs> yes. What the heck do you want here? Do you want them in your house, or do you want them always out here? Mostly, I want them out here, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. There goes that one. Isn't that remarkable? That, that she doesn't want to let any of that stuff go like for us we sit here and we go like well it's so easy just i mean it's an old broken baby toy stroller thing the seats come up throw it away it's garbage but no she wants to keep it and the deal is that it's really easy for us to sit here today listen to my story of my friend who hoarded newspapers and magazines and periodicals and journals and go that's crazy why would anybody ever do that and it's real easy to watch this clip from the show Hoarders and go, whoa, can you believe that she will not part with that stupid thing? And it gets a whole lot more difficult, it gets a whole lot more personal when God starts talking to you and God starts asking you to get rid of the stuff in your heart and in your life that you're hoarding, the stuff in your heart and in your life that's vying with him for control of your life. It gets real difficult at that point. Right? Because all of a sudden the attention is right here. God's talking to you. God's asking you to put stuff down, to make room for him. It gets real gnarly, doesn't it? As we leave Jesus standing out on the front porch of our lives, as he knocks on the door of our heart, and of course we would all like to let him in. Of course we would all like to allow him to lay hold of our whole hearts, our whole lives, but we can't or we won't because we know that inviting Jesus in would mean that we would have to get rid of that or we'd have to get rid of that or we'd have to get rid of that. And well, we like that and we really like that and we could never let that go. I can't put that down. I, I like it way, way too much. Which begs the question that I'm asking all of us to consider today, which is this. What needs to go? What needs to go from your heart and your life to make room for Jesus? What needs to go from your heart and your life that will allow Jesus to lay hold of your whole heart, your whole life, your whole being, your whole self as you prepare your heart for Christmas? To ask the question a different way would be to ask it this way. What has to go because it's vying with God for control of your life. What is it? And there's a really hard truth that's behind those questions. Because see, if there's anything that you're hanging on to in your heart or in your life that's keeping Jesus from laying hold of all of you, if there's anything at all in your life that's vying with God for control of you, you know what it is? It's called an idol. The Bible's real clear that anything that vies with him for control of our hearts and lives is an idol. 
If there's anything at all in your heart or in your life that's taking up God's rightful space, it's simply an idol. And I know some people are like, no, 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 not me. I, I, I don't have an idol problem. Other people might have an idol problem, but that's not my deal. I don't have any idols that are taking space from God. But get this, if Jesus does not have your whole heart and your whole life, you have an idol problem. It's that simple. And you can tell a lot about what a culture's idols are by looking at the things that they worship culturally. And I'm gonna make a list here of things that aren't necessarily your idols. These are just some things that our culture worships, which means these have a chance to become our idols. I'm not saying these are yours. Maybe you'll recognize yourself in some of these. Would you just consider whether any of these are your idols or not? Let's start with sports. Is there anybody whose idol is sports? It might be playing a sport, or it might be cheering a sport on, cheering a team on. Vikings fans in particular are known for their idolatry around the... (laughs) But in all seriousness, sports can very, very quickly become an idol. How about shopping or spending money? and very quickly become an idol, in particular this time of year. And do you know what we call the shopping and spending money idols temples? Do you know what we call them? Shopping malls. Right? And we all file off to the temple of the shopping and spending money idol, and we pay our tithe there. It's a big tithe, isn't it? For some people, saving and investing money can become an idol. People who are trying to insure their future, insure their security, they step back and they're trying to accumulate the biggest pile of resources and money they possibly can, and it's become an idol. Because they say, I'm going to make sure that I can just buy my future. I'm going to make sure that I can have everything I ever want, everything I ever need. I'm never going to want for anything, and it very quickly becomes an idol. We've talked about these before, functional saviors. Functional saviors can become idols. We do this in particular with politicians, world leaders sometimes, and so we see them as functional saviors. We expect or ask of them to be our, quote, salvation, to be our hero, to be our fixer, and we bow down and worship and say, oh, They become idols. This one's hard. Our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our fiance can become an idol in our lives like that fast. Whoa. Because see, when you care more about what your wife or what your husband or what your boyfriend or what your girlfriend or what your fiance thinks, then you care about what God thinks, then you've run smack dab into an idol problem. Kids. Our kids can very, very, very quickly become our idols. And you'd know your kid was an idol or your kids were an idol if you revolve your entire life around your kids, their activities, what they're doing, rather than revolving your whole life around God. That's an idol. This one stings more than just a little bit. It's the idol of work. How many of us? bow down and worship the idol 
of work. And here's how you know that your work has become an idol. When your work consumes you to the place that it saps the very best from you, leaving you with only the leftovers for your spouse or for your kids or for your family or for your friends, then your work has become an idol. Maybe for you, your image is an idol. You care more about how you look. You care more about how you're perceived. You care more about how other people think about you, what other people think about you, than you do about what God says is true about you. That's an idol. And I could go on and on and on. I could talk about idols for more time than we have here today. And here's the deal with idols, any idol. doesn't matter which one it is. They lie. Idols lie to us all day long, all night long. Idols never, ever tell us the truth. Idols always overpromise and way underdeliver. Idols tell us that they'll do stuff and be stuff they cannot ever do, cannot ever be. They lie. Idols lie. And if you were to read the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and you were to start at the beginning of Exodus and read all the way through the story of the Exodus, you see this play out again and again. And here's the story of the book of Exodus. Sin makes us a slave, and God sets us free. Sin makes us a slave, and God sets us free. And idols, they overpromise and they underdeliver. Idols lie to us. They tell us they can offer us stuff. They tell us they can bring us stuff that only God, only God can bring. And all of these idols, doesn't matter whether I listed them or not, they enslave us. And they enslave us and they enslave us. And here's the deal with God. He longs to deliver us from enslavement to anything that isn't of him. God's knocking on the door of your heart today saying, what needs to go? What do I need to set you free from? What idols are you bowing down to that just need to go? Get rid of them. Put them down. And God gets really, really clear about how he feels about our idols competing with him for space in our hearts and in our lives. He feels so strongly about these that he put them, put this instruction inside the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. Here's God's statement on idolatry. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I will not tolerate your affection for any idols, period. Don't do it. Don't worship anything except me. Don't make anything an object of your worship except me. I am it. Sports is not to be your God. Fame is not to be your God. Pleasure is not ever to be your God. Shopping or saving or investing money is not ever to be your God. Functional saviors on the world stage are not to be your God. Spouses and boyfriends and girlfriends and fiancés are not ever to be your God. Children are not to be your God. Your marriage is not to be your God. Your image, your beauty, your body, your percentage of body fat is not to be your God. 
the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the house you live in, other people's perceptions of you are not ever to be your gods. Get this one. Hunting for idols in your heart and life is not to be your God either. None of that is in control of your heart and life. None of those are meant to be in charge of your heart and life. God is meant to be in charge. God is meant to occupy all of the space, 100% of the space of our hearts and lives. It's that simple. Last week I showed you the learning circle and we used it to interact a bit with the Lord about what he's saying to us about the soil of our hearts. Today I want us to use the learning circle to interact with what God's saying to us about the idols in our lives that need to go to make room for Jesus. What idols do we need to put down? And if you remember from last week, I made space on your notes page so you could draw this again. The learning circle comes to us from the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached, Mark 1, 14 and 15, where Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Very first sermon Jesus ever preached. And so we represent this line, which is representative of what? If you remember from last week, what is that line? Time, right? This is chronological time passing. If you're a fantastic artist like I am, you could even draw yourself on that. Isn't that beautiful? Like, wow, boy, can I draw. I'm being facetious, by the way. And here's time, it's passing, and here we go, this moment where God breaks into the chronological passing of time. What do we call this moment? Kairos moment, the Greek word right from Mark 1, 14, 15. The time has come. If you don't want to learn Greek, and this is too hard of a word, I often use the word bam to represent God breaking in. Bam, God is breaking into the chronological passing of time. Here he is, and he's breaking in for all of us today with the question, what idols is God asking you to put down? What do you have to get rid of to make room for Jesus Christ? And this Kairos moment then sends us into the learning circle, and we move through the learning circle this way, and what's the first stop on the learning circle journey? It's an O word, we Observe, that's exactly right. Three people were here last week. We observe, right? And when we observe, you know what we're doing? We're asking the what question. What are the idols in my life? What is going on? What is the deal with that idol? After we've observed, after we've asked the what question, what do we do next? Our word. Reflect, that's exactly right. We reflect. These two are very, very closely tied, aren't they? And when we reflect, you know what we're doing? You know what kind of question we're asking? Why? We're asking the why question. Why is that an idol in my life? Why am I struggling with that? Why is God asking me to put that down? And we camp out here. We spend time here and we move through observation and reflection around God saying to us, God breaking into the ordinary passing of time and we say, God, what idols are you asking me to put down? What are you asking me to do about this? What's my next step? Now, if you remember, there's two sides of the learning circle. This side is the repent 
side where we ask the question, what is God saying to me? Right? In essence, we're asking the question, how is God inviting me to change on the inside? What's he doing in my heart? On this side, you remember what this is? If this is the repent side, what's this side? Believe, that's exactly right. Repent and believe the good news. And so, what is God saying to me and what am I gonna do about it? What am I gonna do with what God's saying to me? Inner change reflected by an outer change in behavior. And we work through all of this. God, what are you asking me to repent of? What are you saying to me about the idols in my heart and life? How are you wanting to change me from the inside out? And none of this has any filters. What's really going on, the real God deals with the real you. Right here, we reflect. The real God deals with the real you. Now, what you need to know is that the learning circle can be used a variety of ways, but it's primarily designed to be used in a close circle, a close community, a small group of friends who have 100% access to each other's hearts and lives, which gets to why the next step, the next stop on the learning circle is so relevant. Does anyone know what it is? It's a D word. Discuss. I heard it. You've been reading ahead. Nice job. Discussion. That's the next stop. We observe, we reflect, and then we discuss. Now, you can absolutely use this learning circle by yourself. You could use it to work through a passage of scripture. You could use it to work through a kairos all by yourself. You absolutely could. But its primary role and the real power in the learning circle is as a discipleship tool in a small group of people who are focused on growing in their faith in Jesus Christ. So that means when you get to the discuss piece, you're really asking your friends who are in very close community with you, what do you sense God is saying to me about this kairos, this bam, where God is breaking in? What do you think God's saying to me about the idols in my heart and life? What do you think God's saying to me? Now, there's different meanings behind the word discussion, right? There's all kinds of different sorts of discussion that you can have. There's advice-giving discussion. There's counseling sort of discussion. There's conventional wisdom kind of discussion. But I want to be really, really clear that in the learning circle, the kind of discussion that we're talking about is a very, very vertical a very, very up and down sort of discussion where the other members of your group, your huddle, as we like to call them, is being asked to literally hear from God in the moment about what he's saying to you about this kairos. You're asking them, what do you think God's saying to me about this kairos? And you as a member of that community You're going to have an ear to what this person is saying to you about this kairos, about the idols that they think they need to lay down. One ear to them, one ear to God. God, what are you saying to me that you want me to communicate to this person who's walking through this kairos? What are you saying? 
So that means the discussion that you offer, it isn't going to be something you read in a book or something you heard on a podcast or something your mom always told you when you were in this kind of situation. This is about us learning to train our ears and our hearts to hear from God while at the same time we're listening to someone talk about what they sense God is saying to them. And if you're in a huddle with somebody and you're working through a kairos moment, one of the things that you're listening for around the kairos, around the discussion piece, is you're listening for these escape clauses that people like to play. These escape clauses that people like to say, right? Because putting idols down is hard work. Putting idols down is difficult. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to come naturally to us. It's going to require some energy, some expenditure of energy, And so lots and lots of people, they then try to sort of get off the hook. I don't really want to put that idol down because I kind of like it. And so they're going to offer some medicating thoughts, they call them, to try to minimize what God's asking them to do with the idols in their life. You saw the hoarder do it. Like, no, no, no. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to throw that away. When someone's confronted with throwing their junk away, whether it's by a person or by God, They're going to instantly, we're going to instantly try to dismiss the urgency of what God's saying to them. I don't don't want to deal with that. One of the medicating thoughts that people offer is, I might need that. We do it with the idols in our lives, right? Yeah, I might run into a circumstance in my life where I I need that idol. And I don't want, it's kind of like a security blanket to me and I might have to interact with somebody and this idol in my life, I, I, I might need that. If you're dealing with a hoarder and they say that, you're like, well, when was the last time you read this newspaper from 1965? Well, in about 1965. Have you needed it since then? No. Hey, probably throw it away. You can probably get rid of that. Another medicating thought that people often offer, whether they're talking about idols that need to go from their heart and life or whether they're talking about cleaning out their garages, they say, I might miss that. I might miss that. Oh, I... I, I I can't live without that. I'll miss it if you take it away. I won't put that idol down because I'll miss it. Or I won't throw Bailey's first poopy diaper away because she's my firstborn child and, well, it reminds me every time of what a wonderful baby that she was. And so I'm gonna keep, I might miss Bailey's first. By the way, that's what memories are for, so you don't have to keep everything. And whether we're talking about hoarding behavior with stuff in our garage or stuff in our living room or stuff in our kitchen or whether we're talking about the idols that we hoard in our hearts and lives, the tendency more often than not is to say a whole bunch of soothing sentiments to settle us down and do away with any sense of urgency. That's why the discuss piece is so important in the learning circle because God has spoken, we've observed, we've reflected and now it's time to like deal with it. Not excuse it, not dismiss it and there's real urgency isn't there when someone's standing there saying can I throw this away there's urgency when God says what idol in your life do you need to put down there's urgency and that sense of urgency that people feel from seeing things as they really are they get them really really close they get us really close to acting but it's scary to put idols down sometimes it's scary to throw stuff away that we've held on to for 30 years 
That brings about great anxiety. And so very often to rid ourselves of the anxiety, we try to talk ourselves out of the action. We talk ourselves back from the edge. I might need that. I might miss that. The other one we say, and this is one of the most powerful medicating thoughts that people ever offer, is they say, I'll do it later. Have you ever said that? Something really, really important, something really, really big, maybe God's speaking to you and you're like, yeah, I'll handle that later, God. Now's not such a good time, pretty busy. I'll do that later. And that very statement makes almost all sense of urgency vanish, right? For just a moment, we feel the sense of relief of the problem being solved without ever having to go through the hard work of actually solving the problem. Lots and lots of people I know, especially this time of year, food really becomes quite an idol, doesn't it? And so the person who binges their way through all the wonderful Christmas buffets at all the wonderful Christmas parties they attend, they're really quite, they quite easily escape what God's saying to them about food being their idol, about needing to set the idol of food down, and they dismiss it by saying, you know, after Christmas... After January 1st, I'm going to go on a diet. After Christmas, I'm going to go back to the gym. Yeah, God, I hear what you're saying to me about food being an idol in my heart and in my life, but there's not really an issue. So I'm just going to keep eating this junk and keep eating this junk because it's all going to be dealt with in January. Does that sound familiar? It's all going to be dealt with in January. And so for that person, later is as good as done in their mind, maybe even in their hearts But you know the deal. For so many people, later never comes. For so many people, January, yeah, next January, next January, next January. And the disgust piece of the learning circle helps us press into the next stop on the learning circle where we cross over from the repent side, we move over to the believe side, and we actually make a plan. Because we've heard from God, he's broken in. What idols is God asking you to put down? We observe what are the idols, why is it an idol, why is it a deal? We've discussed it around this close circle of friends that moves us then over here to plan where it gets to the what am I gonna do about it? God's spoken, now what am I gonna do? I'm on, I'm on the hook. I'm fully on the hook and now it's just a matter of me obeying God. I'm actually going to respond to what God's asking me to do. I'm actually going to obey him. I'm not just going to ignore. I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm not going to medicating thought it away. I make a plan. What are you going to do to put that idol down? What are you going to do to put those idols down? What are you going to do to make sure that things are vying with God for control of your heart and life aren't anymore. Now in closing, I want to back up to something I talked about a few minutes ago and it's that Exodus 20 verse 5 verse where God says, I'm a jealous God. Lots and lots of Christians, they get real exercised when they come to that passage. Lots and lots of Christians sort of jump up and down, get real bent out of shape. They say, oh my gosh, God says he's jealous. Jealousy is a sin. God's confessing to sin right on the pages of Scripture, right? God's not sinning. When God says he's 
jealous. I actually think, along with a whole bunch of other people, that that is one of the best news verses in the entire scripture, and here's why. God is jealous because he's utterly and completely in love with you. God is jealous because he is utterly and completely in love with you. And that should astound us. Oh my gosh. I'm a jealous God and I don't want to share space with anyone or anything else. I made your heart for me, God says. I didn't make it for anyone else. I didn't make your heart so I could fight with sports or with money or with others. I made it for me. And those of you who have been utterly and completely in love with somebody in your life, the thought of seeing that person in the arms of anybody other than you, what's it do to you? Makes you go like ballistic, doesn't it? No, I'm a really, really nice guy. I'm a really nice guy. But if I went home one day after a day of work and I walked into the house and there's Dana with a boyfriend sitting on the couch, all my niceness goes right out the window, I assure you. Right? I'm going to go ballistic. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you've been in love with somebody, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There aren't going to be any medicating thoughts. That other guy's going to need some medicine, but... <laughs> Why do we go ballistic with people, with the thought of people we love in the arms of someone else? Because we love them. And we love them completely and entirely. And so you see, when God says he's jealous, he's saying, I hate, he's literally saying, I hate to see you in the arms of all these other idols that you're giving your life to. I hate that. I hate that. God hates it. And he hates it because he made you for so much more. He hates it because we've bought the lie of the idols that tells us that they can show us a good time, that they can do all of these things that only God can really he hates it because we've bought the lie. God's jealous because he wants us to be entirely enraptured with him. He wants our hearts to belong only to him. God doesn't want to be left standing out on the porch of our hearts, standing out in the cold while we clear out some dusty corner and try to fit him into everything you've already got going on. God says, I'm jealous because I want to be your everything. I made your heart for me and nothing else. All those idols, they're just enslaving you. Another day, they're just chaining you up, tying you up, binding you up. And God says, put, put them down. Just put them down. All the idols, put, put them down and be free. Get on to the freedom that I made you for, God says. So don't get all exercised when you see that text. God's jealous because he loves you. He loves you that much, so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to pay our penalty, to pay our price. It's astounding. He loves you and me that much. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and even move into a time of observation and reflection about a kairos that you may have had today. It might be around idols or it might be around something different. 
What needs to go from your heart and life to make room for Jesus? because of God's love for you that Jesus came to earth as a baby on that first Christmas. It was only because of his love for us that he came to show us how to live life his way. It's only because of his love for us that he came to die and to rise to make the way for us to have a relationship with God our Father. And there may be some here today, some within the hearing of my voice, who for the first time in your life, you know this is your day to step into salvation and forgiveness once and for all. Some others of us, we may have been in faith for years and we're working on idols. There's some things in our lives that we need to put down, but maybe there's some others of us who Jesus is knocking on the door of our heart saying, I died to forgive you. I died to make a way for you to live with me forever and forever starts now. Some of you today that God might be knocking on the door of your heart saying, it's time for you to come home. You've been worshiping a lot of idols for an awfully long time. But I made your heart for me. Come home. And if that's you today, you can take that bold step of trusting Christ with your whole heart, your whole life, your whole eternity, your whole everything by praying along with me. I invite you to pray with me if that's you. Jesus, yes, I am a sinner. And Jesus, yes, I acknowledge that I am incapable of saving myself. And so Christ, with all the faith I can muster in this moment, I receive your gift of salvation, which is everything I need. I trust you once and for all. Savior, boss, ruler, it's you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead for me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the gift of eternal life. I trust you. Here I am, all of me. And if that's you, if you're someone who's stepping into the saving faith of Christ today, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. Nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Nobody's looking around this room. It's you, me, and God looking on right now. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, would you just be real bold and slip your hand up? You can do that right now. Lock eyes with me and just let me acknowledge your decision today. Yeah, right there, yeah. Way to go, yes. You, yes, absolutely. And here, yes. No more idols, yeah. Way to go. And over there, absolutely, yes. And here and here, both of you, absolutely, yes. Way to go. Just Jesus, nothing else. The real estate of our hearts, and way in the back to my left, absolutely, yeah. The real estate of your hearts are his. It's his. And yeah, way to go, girls. Way to go. 
God, we thank you so much for being a jealous God, for loving us that much, for not just settling for sharing space and coexisting with far, far, far lesser things, God. And here's what's true about us as a church family. We all, every one of us, we need boldness to put some things down. There's some things that we're thinking about putting down right now, some of us. And it's scary to think about putting it down. Because we might miss it. We might need it. It'd be much easier to say, yeah, I'll take care of that later. And God, what we need is your strength and your boldness to actually put it down now. Because it's competing with you and we want you to have all of us. Not just because it's Christmas time. But we want you to have all of us all of the time, starting now. And so will you breathe your courage across the life of our community this week? As we walk out these doors and as we put some things down, as we stop worshiping idols, that we'd be steadfast in you and that you would act mightily on our behalf, Jesus. It's you we love, it's you we worship, it's you, Jesus, we give our lives to.